My wife, Allison, she's an artist. When we began dating, one of the many ways, but perhaps the best way that I wooed her was to sneak into the art department after hours. This was while she was burning the midnight oil in the graphic design studio and I would bring her snacks. I would bring Allison an Arizona iced tea and some form of a salty snack every night. We would sit down for a few moments and then, when it was painfully obvious, probably more painful for Allison, and I was irritating more than I was wooing, I would leave, I would head back to my dorm and I would, I would either go to sleep or study a bit. I'll let you guess which I did. Artists work all hours of the day because like writing a great sermon, when the creative juices begin to flow, there's little the artist or the preacher can do but sit down and create. One of my earliest memories I have of observing Allison's art making was when she was making a bottle of soap using Adobe Illustrator. Students were not permitted to import a photograph and then trace the photograph using computer software. From scratch, paying attention to all of the details, yet seeing the big picture, students had to take straight boxy lines and turn them into the curves of a soap bottle. Students had to recreate the object. One night, after driving to a nearby convenience store and procuring Allison's wooing juice, I sat down next to her in the graphic design studio as she was working. After a few moments, I asked, What in the world are you making? It just kind of blurted out. What are you talking about? Allison said. The bottle, it's sitting right there. Now, I knew that I was in it, but I was hoping that the wooing juice I had procured before arriving would do its job, and frankly, I didn't know any better at this point. I responded by saying, that doesn't look much like a soap dispenser. It doesn't look like a bottle of soap. It's a bottle of soap, Allison said. She was calm, but she was obviously irritated. I guess I just don't see it, I said. She said, I guess you're right. At that point, I knew I'd overstayed my welcome because her classmates were beginning to look at us, a few of them with their eyes piercing through my soul, and others had a sympathetic, at least you tried, glance. It had just been a few hours after Mary discovered the empty tomb and rushed to tell the other disciples, when two other followers of Jesus, Cleopas and an unnamed man, they began traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus. These men were exhausted. They were weary after the highs and the lows of Holy Week. The high of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and the low, the sorrow of the cross on Good Friday. These men, they were headed home. They weren't unaware of what had occurred. They spoke to one another about everything that had transpired. And then when they were joined by a stranger... Spoiler alert, it was Jesus. They told this stranger, not recognizing who it was, everything that they had experienced. They told the stranger the events of the past week with great detail. They looked back and they told the stranger about the one whom they had been following. The disciples, they shared the Easter news with a stranger, yet it was not enough to convince them to stay in Jerusalem. Even in their description of who Jesus was to this mystery traveler, they left out key details. 
The details the disciples omitted make the Easter news good news for those who were hoping that Jesus of Nazareth would be the one to rescue the Redeemer of Israel. A mentor of mine points out that what the disciples said to this stranger, this traveler, was true, but it was not entirely sufficient. Jesus of Nazareth was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God, they told the stranger. True enough, but not sufficient. We had hoped that he would be the one to liberate Israel, they told him. We had hoped he would be the one, the revolutionary, who would finally free us from our oppressors. Again, true enough, but not sufficient. Their answers aren't wrong. Their answers, well, they're just not big enough. It was not until the stranger gave the disciples an impromptu Bible study. Think of this as the Bible study to end all Bible studies, connecting and interpreting all things about the stranger, Jesus himself, to the scriptures, starting with Moses and then going through the prophets. And then, and then Jesus joined them at the table. He took bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to him. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then he was gone. The next evening, after I had had time to remove my uncultured foot from my mouth, I again snuck into the West Virginia Wesleyan Art Department and I brought Allison her wooing juice. The bottle of soap looked like a bottle of soap. It looked like what it was supposed to look like. How in the world did you do that? I asked Allison. I mean, just last night, it looked nothing like that. Last night, I was working on the bubbles. I was zoomed in, Allison replied with a snide smirk. Her classmates were laughing at me at this point. The portion of the illustration Allison had been working on the night before had been zoomed in. Allison was working on the details, the part of the piece of art that I overlooked today when we're at the Hirshhorn or the National Gallery. And I only notice them after Allison points them out to our son, Camden. For the two disciples traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus, it was not until the wholeness of Jesus, the wholeness of Christ was revealed to them, right in front of their faces that they knew who was standing before them. And then, in the middle of the night, these two men would run back from Emmaus to Jerusalem, seven miles in the direction that they had just come from, and they would declare to the disciples who remained in the city that they, in Emmaus, had seen Jesus. They would not refer to Jesus as a prophet. They did not rush back to Jerusalem to report that God had raised Jesus, the prophet, from the dead. They did not call Jesus a liberator. They did not call him a revolutionary. They didn't even call Jesus a savior. They did not rush back to Jerusalem to report that the Lamb of God, who took away the sins of the world, had come back. Instead, after the risen Jesus interpreted Moses and the prophets to them, revealing the Old Testament scriptures and prophecy, the only Bible that they would have known of, then they took off to herald the return of Jesus, their Lord. They confessed their faith in their faith in Jesus as Lord. The Lord, the returning disciples proclaimed to Peter, the Lord is risen indeed. Jesus is Lord. 
The culmination of the Emmaus story is found in the disciples being able to see the risen Lord in the breaking of bread. But they are unable to see the risen Lord without Jesus' Bible study to end all Bible studies, explaining how the entire Old Testament, every last word, is about him. For us, as followers of Christ, we believe God's plan A has always been Jesus And the revelation of the coming Messiah, now present in our risen Lord, is everywhere throughout the Old Testament. Jesus as Lord is the big picture we miss, like the disciples on their way to Emmaus, when we hone in on a detail of the story and we miss that that detail does not suffice. And then, as a failing art critic would attempt to do, we try to make sense of the story of the person of Jesus, and we fail to show the bigger picture, that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, sin and death no longer hold their boot to the throat of what God has created, to what God has reigned over in Jesus Christ. We're hunkered down. And while we may feel like teenagers grounded and unable to leave the house, and we're wondering what we are supposed to do or where God is, this Emmaus story, the entire story, not just the disciples' failure to see Jesus, the breaking of the bread, or their rush back to Jerusalem, the entire story shows us that not only is Jesus at work, but he has been at work since the beginning Before Moses, way back when the Word was God and the Word was with God, God has been present and God is present with us now, every single one of us. While we may be grounded at home and feeling as though the ground underneath of us is shifting, Christ remains the same. Christ, the one the scriptures were pointing to, the one who overcame the power of sin and death, and the one who continues to reign as Lord over all of creation, that Jesus Christ is our grounding. He is our sure foundation. Our risen Lord is among us. He is present when we pray, when we study, when we break bread. But more importantly, he has always been present. And he's always been our Lord. Amen.